All right, so we're about, we're four weeks into our study. So far, we've said what? We went, where did we start? Which is? Genesis. Genesis. Okay, so we went back to Genesis and we looked at what? Before, before they ate the fruit. They created. And we looked at this, this phrase that's used, let us create them in our image. Yeah? That we are created in the image of God. And the question is, what does that mean? So one of the things that I think that means, and to me, like, at least for our study at the moment, the most important thing is the sense that, like, God is love. Love is relationship. God in his trinity, there's relationship and love is an essential part of who he is. And he created us in his image. He created us in that same way with the capacity to love and the capacity to be in a, like a real loving, trusting relationship. Yeah? With who? Each Sorry? Each other and God. Principally, first, most importantly, God but also other people, yeah? Okay, so God created us to be in relationship with him. What did Jesus call that? Being in a relationship with God, eternal life. Jesus said, this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. So eternal life is having a relationship with God. Okay, that's what we started, and that's what we were created for. Then, Adam and Eve did what? Eat the fruit. God said, you can do pretty much, you can have anything you like here, just don't, not that one. Trust me, that is going to bring pain and destruction in your life. Don't touch that. Well, don't eat that. But then Satan shows up, Satan shows up and says, nah, he's lying to you. That's not true. He's keeping things from you. That's actually what's going to bring you joy in your life. And they believed him. Now, if you believe that Satan's telling the truth, what do you believe about God? Liar, liar, liar. Lying. Liar. He's lying to you. What does that mean for your relationship? Untrusting. Yeah, at the point that you don't trust somebody, you're not really in, you don't have that, like, a good relationship with them anymore. Yeah? And so immediately the relationship between Adam and Eve and God was broken the moment that they decided God was lying to them. Which means what for their eternal life? Uh, it's gone. Yeah. The moment that their relationship with God is broken, their eternal life is broken. Okay. What else have they dis- did they discover when they ate that fruit? That's what I assumed. That was the, that, the consequence. But what else? In eating that fruit, what did they realize they could do? Anything they wanted to do. They didn't have to do what God wanted them to do, right? And to me, that's a lot of what the knowledge of good and evil is. Prior to that, you're just in this perfect relationship, innocence, trust in God the Father. You do whatever He does, whatever He says. But now you realize, actually, there are alternatives. I don't have to just do the good. I can do evil. Okay. Now... What was the result of them making that choice, believing that God was lying to them and eating the fruit that he told them not to eat? Death, as God said it would be, right? The day that you eat it, you will die. But then the question was, what does that mean? What is death? And we got about halfway through that conversation last time, a couple weeks ago. I said, to me, there's like probably three levels to the death that sin brings. The first I called practical death. Oh, okay. Like your body dying. No. More like, more like the painful consequences of doing things our own way. The pain and destruction and suffering that it causes in our lives and the lives of everybody around us. And so if you remember... Just as an example, we looked at a whole bunch of the Ten Commandments and just said, like, what happens when you don't do these things? When you break these commandments? And it always brings 
death, not necessarily physical death. That one is pretty, pretty clear, literal death, right? But it all brings terrible things, pain, not the things that God wants for us in our lives. Not, not what you would want for, like, not what your, kid, your parents want for you because they love you, right? It's the same thing. God does not want those, that pain in our lives, but that's what doing things our own way brings. So called that practical death. But like we said, probably not the main thing that God had in mind when he said, if you eat from that fruit, you will die. The more obvious answer is, yeah, we said physical death. We'll die. It is impossible to be sure of anything but death and taxes. True! I'm sorry. Or as the Bible says, man is destined to die once and then to face the judgment. And so we talked about this, the fact that as humans, every single one of us have death as a destiny, physical death. Our bodies are going to die one way or another. We also talked about the fact that when God created the world, as it's described in Genesis, there was no death. Not in man, not even in animals. What were animals supposed to eat? Yeah, said all the green plants, all the fruit, that's for you for food, you and the animals. So apparently, in God's initial creation, everything was vegetarian. There was no death. What? Yeah. Anyway, but all that changed. All that changed when man decided to go their own way, and now man dies, animals die, and we looked at this verse in Romans. That's quite interesting. Paul says, "The creation eagerly waits for the revelation of the sons of God. So, for the sons of God to be revealed, who are the sons of God who are going to be revealed?" Do you think? Us. Us, yeah. There's another verse that, uh, is it in John? There's another, another verse which says like, what? We don't yet appear as we are, but when we see God face to face, then we'll be, I don't know, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but basically like, we're all, we are the sons of God now. We've been saved. We've been recreated, reborn, right? Sons of God, but it's not obvious looking at us yet. But one day, we're going to be revealed for who we are. And creation is waiting for that day. For the creation was subjected to futility, pointlessness, meaninglessness. Not willingly, but because of God who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together until now. And so what Paul's essentially saying there is that it's not just that we die and that animals die. Apparently, the whole of creation is slowly dying. The entire universe. It's in bondage to decay. It's slowly falling apart. Everything. And we said there's a, there's a term for this in physics. It's the second law of thermodynamics. It says that over time, everything tends towards disorder. <coughs> and in terms of energy, everything's going from useful energy to useless energy. And that eventually, if the universe lasted long enough, it would die. It's called heat death. Everything would be the same temperature and nothing would be possible. So creation, the universe itself is dying. And so the So that's the reality. That's what God said would happen. But the question that I have is like, why was that necessary? Why was death the necessary consequence of sin? Does that make sense? Like God said, if you eat the fruit, you will die. And we just go, okay, 
right? Just assume that that's true. But why is that true? Why is that necessary? Why should death be the consequence of sin? And I think there's probably a couple ways to answer that. The first is like, because God said so, and he cannot lie, so then it has to, yeah? But kind of like when we were talking about good and bad, what makes something good, what makes something bad, I don't like that answer that much. It's true, but it's not helpful to me. I kind of like to have some sense of actually understanding why that might be. I'm not sure, well, I don't really know. I don't feel like I do. Why death is the consequence of sin. But I'll share some thoughts that I've had about it. So firstly, the world as God created it, there's no death, yeah? No death of man, no death of animals, no bondage of decay. The universe is not dying. No death. Okay. But... Man chooses freedom, chooses to be free. Wasn't he free even more? Sorry? Wasn't man even more free before that? That's, yeah, well, that's a a very deep point, but not something I necessarily want to go into at the moment. But yeah, the reality is if we play within our fence, we're actually a lot freer often than if we, yeah, anyway, whatever. Man chose, no, I'm going to do what I want, right? I'm not going to do what God says I should do. I'm going to be free. I'm going to do whatever I want, regardless of what God wants. At the moment that that happens, so God's purpose, his design for creation was no death, yeah? So if we're doing things God's way, will there be death? No. We decide... Actually, we're free beings, right? We can do what, I, what we want. At that point, death becomes a possibility, yeah? So we can kill. Oh, that's, that's so valid. Yeah? So at the moment that man becomes free, death becomes possible. But I'd suggest it's not just possible. I would say that at the moment that man became free, death became inevitable, and if you want proof for that, would you like proof for that? Is this a documentary? You only have to go to the next chapter in Genesis. Chapter 4. What happens in Genesis chapter 4? The very next chapter, their son Cain, Adam and Eve's son Cain, kills his brother Abel. Death. Right? But that's not death at the hand of God. That's not death as a consequence of some curse of God. That's death as a consequence of man being free to do what he wants. Yeah? And so, in this new world where man is free to do what he wants, I think that death is not just an option. I think that death was inevitable. But that still doesn't answer the question, okay, fine, sure, man, some men, some people might kill some other people, and so there is a death. But why build it into creation itself? Why make it so that it's not just possible, but it's literally inevitable for everyone, that everybody is going to die, and that creation itself is dying? Why make it a part of the of the actual fabric of the universe. Know what I mean? Why must everybody die? Um, Wait, hand up first. He gets first first go. Um, I guess in in a way to um, get back to God to be with him again with eternal life instead of just you know staying in the chuck world forever I like it ditto 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 too that's pretty much where I was going like I, I think that there's I've kind of two different answers to that question why death is a part of the universe that we live in one of it is like 
because it allows for a new beginning, yeah? Given this new reality where man is free, do you want that universe to be immortal? Do you want Cain to immortally kill or worse, Hitler, whoever, to be basically to live forever unless somebody kills them? What do you mean as he works? Don't know. Don't know. Anyway, that's probably. Anyway. Because it was on the A. Oh, well. Damn. Statistics. The point is. Hey. Welcome. The point is that this now, this new world that exists with man free, freed himself from the shackles of God, free to do whatever he wants, is a painful and broken world. You don't want that world to go on forever, right? You want it to be temporary. You want it to be replaced by something better, something new. And so I think that that is part of the reason why it was subject to the bondage of decay, that it was subjected to futility. It was so that one day it would die and God could replace it with something better. That's, that is our hope. That's the hope that Paul talks about. As you get older, you'll uh, cling to this more. He says, For we know that if our earthly house, that's this body, the tent that we live in is dismantled, falls apart, and as you get older, that starts to happen more and more. We have a building from God, a house not built by human hands that is eternal in the heavens. For in this earthly house we groan because we desire to put on our heavenly dwelling. I'm sick of this body. I want my good one. <laughs> if indeed after we put on our heavenly body, our heavenly house, we won't be found naked. So like... What? Mm. Where do we want to go with that? No, it's fine. Okay. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. You don't have to go. Over no, do you know? Basically, okay, so there's these other, there's this other passage that talks about judgment before God of believers. And it says that our lives are going to be passed, it's as though our lives are going to be passed through fire. And everything that is, Wood and hay and kindling is going to burn up and be gone. And everything that is gold, silver, and precious stones will remain. And it talks about like our life, we have a foundation which is Jesus, we're saved. But then we get to build on that foundation in our lives with the things that we do. And the question is, do we do anything that has eternal value in our lives? Do we just spend, God saves us, fine. We've got that foundation of Jesus. Do we then just go spend the rest of our lives making ourselves happy? Gaming, whatever, eating, all these other things, sleeping. Things, all of chasing after money or whatever it is, like things that have no eternal value. Because that in the end is going to be wood, hay and stubble. It's going to be nothingness. When it goes through the judgment, it's going to be gone. Or are you doing things in your life that actually have eternal value? That's the gold, precious, gold, silver, precious stones. And at the point that you go through the fire, those things are going to be there. That's your clothing. And it says that some will go through that fire and they will, they will still be saved, it says, but as though through the fire with nothing to show for it. They'll be naked. <laughs> Not like literally, I hope. But like, you know, you got nothing to show for it, nothing to show for your life. So that's kind of what he's saying here. We're all looking forward to this day when we get our new bodies, our real bodies, assuming that we're not going to be embarrassed when that happens. But let's assume we're not going to be embarrassed. We groan while we're in this tent since we are weighed down because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And that really, I think, again, is the is what this is all about, or part of what this is about, is that the world, having been created eternal, having been created without death, 
was then made temporary. It was made mortal so that one day it could be swallowed up by life. It could be replaced. This, this world of death could be replaced by, by the kind of world that God intended us to enjoy. And at that point, it will be inhabited, that world will be inhabited by people who, unlike Adam and Eve, have chosen to be there. They've chosen to trust God. And so they can actually enjoy the world that he's made for them. Not wondering about that other fruit, hopefully. So that's the one side of it. I think that's one of the reasons why the world was made, why death was a consequence of sin, was so that the world would die and it could be replaced by something better. But I think that's only one of the reasons. There is another reason why physical death is made a part of our human experience, something that every single one of us as humans are going to come face to face with at some point. And I think it's so that we would understand what God really meant when he said, you will surely die. I think it's so that we would have a, an object lesson, a physical, a physical representation of the real death that Adam and Eve's decision would bring. Because when they decided to reject God, to reject His Word, to stop trusting Him, that absolutely brought practical death. Yeah? Their lives became hard, which we'll see at some point. It also brought physical death. Chapter 4 of Genesis, and ever since. But I don't think that's what God had in mind when he said, you will surely die. I think he had something far, far worse in mind. I think he was warning them that if you go your own way, and you lose this relationship, the relationship with, that you have with me, that you're going to be permanently separated from your purpose for being, and from the very source of life itself. And so I think that death in this life, the death that we experience ourselves, but much more the death that we experience in the people around us, is a... Preview. Sorry? Preview. A preview. A, a ugly and painful picture of the true and eternal death that God is really concerned about. It's like a physical example, something that we can touch, something that we feel so that we know what he means when he says, you will surely die. There's a, there's a famous 14th century poem called Dante's Inferno. Have you guys heard of that? Well, he, he, wrote, he wrote a poem. It's long. Story. It's a book. Yeah, it's a book. Dante, the author, gets taken on a tour of hell in this book. Different levels of hell. <clears throat> but as he goes through the gates of hell, there's this phrase written above the gates. That says, abandon all hope, you who enter here. That is absolutely terrifying. In this life, there is always hope. No matter how terrible a situation is, there's always like some small chance that something might change and it might get better. Yeah, that's hope. And as long as there is hope, as long as there is hope that it could get better, there's like, there's life, there's reason, there's a reason to be alive, right? To live, because it could get better. And when we lose that, and we're convinced that nothing can ever change, and it's never going to get any better, that's despair. And, and it's, and that is heartbreaking and it's tragic 
Because the reality is, in this life, there is always hope. As long as there is life, as long as you are alive, there is hope. Things can get better. And especially for us as Christians, we have, we have promise. Our hope does not disappoint us because it's found in God. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So in our lives, no matter how terrible things are, there is always hope. Imagine what it means to be utterly without hope. To, in a moment, find yourself permanently lost with no hope. To be in a situation that is unalterable. There is nothing you can do to change it. You are separated from God. You're separated from life. You're separated from anything good and there is no way to change that ever. Like, the level of despair is unimaginable. And that's what that phrase is saying. When you come in here, abandon your hope. There is none. This is your life. This is it. That is the death that God was concerned about when he said, don't eat from that tree. Because when you eat from it, you will die. That if you choose to know good and evil, that you, if you want there to be other ways to live besides my way, and you're going to choose to do your own thing, Go your own way, that your relationship with me is going to be destroyed. And so rather than enjoy eternal life with me, you're going to experience eternal death without me. That, I think, is the death that God was really concerned about. That's the death that He wants us to fear. And that's the death that, from my perspective, our physical death, that painful separation from people that we love, is just a picture of the death that God really has in mind, that God is really concerned about. Yeah? Now, unfortunately, we, through Adam and Eve, Uh, I didn't believe God. He didn't trust what he said. He didn't trust his word. And so they chose to take the bet and to gamble it all on the word of a snake. And the rest is history. They lost that relationship of intimacy with God. The next thing that happens is before that. God comes looking for them and they are hiding. But you can see, right? The relationship's not there anymore. You're hiding from him. And they were, yeah, we've been living in death ever since. Practical death, physical death, and eternal spiritual death. That's the bad news. But that's not what we're here for. Yeah? It's not what we're here to study. We're here for the? The good news. The glorious gospel. What is the good news? Do you remember? What did Mark say the good news was? What did the disciples say the good news was? Jesus. Jesus is the good news. Jesus. In the Gospel of John, there's this like amazing story. Jesus is down in Judea, near Jerusalem. His home was up in Galilee, up in the north. He's down south. This is like just before the triumphal entry. 
So this is like days or weeks before Jesus is crucified. Yeah? No. Crime for entry is when he comes into Jerusalem, which is like four days before he's crucified. So this is pretty soon before Jesus is crucified, and he decides to go back to where it all began. He goes across the Jordan River to the spot where John the Baptist baptized him three years earlier, and his whole ministry started. Okay. Nearby, in the village of Bethany, he has three really good friends. Lazarus and his sister Mary and Martha. Lazarus gets really sick, like really sick. And so Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus, who's kind of nearby, to say, Lord, the one you love is sick. What do you think they wanted Jesus to do? Come and heal him, yeah? It's not what he did. He stayed there for another two days. And then after two days, he says to his disciples, come on, let's go to Judea. And his disciples are like, are you mad? We were just in Judea. Last time we were in Judea, the, Jew the Jewish leaders tried to kill you, which is another story. Why would you want to go back there? And so Jesus says, our friend Lazarus, he's fallen asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. And his disciples are like, that's good, right? If he's sleeping, it means he'll get better. And Jesus is like, oh, shake my head. He's dead. But come on, let's go to him anyway. And so off they go to, to Bethany. And this is where Thomas, you guys know Doubting Thomas? One of the disciples? Yeah? I won't believe he's risen unless I can stick my hand in his side. Doubting Thomas. This is where Thomas has his probably most glorious but also most hilarious moment. Jesus is like, Lazarus is dead. We're going to go anyway. And so Thomas says, let us go too so that we may die with him. <laughs> and I can't help but like picture Eeyore. <laughs> you know? Anyway. So yeah, they go back to, back to Judea, back to Bethany to go and see Lazarus. When they arrive there, they find out that Lazarus has actually been dead and buried in the tomb for four days. But when Martha realizes that Jesus is there, she comes running out to him and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will grant you. Can you hear like the pain in her voice? She's like, lost her brother that she loved so much, but also like the desperation. She's experienced this like this heartbreaking agony, the excruciating separation from somebody that she loves. And so she starts pleading with Jesus, begging God, please spare me this. Bring him back to, well, she doesn't say it, but that's what she's implying, right? God will do anything you ask. Please ask him to bring my brother back. Now, as a rule, as far as I can see, in this life, God doesn't protect us from the realities of this broken world. That's not something that he promised us. Um, I think that for the most part, God's concern is more, he's more concerned with our eternal joy than he is concerned with our earthly happiness. And so when he asks us to trust him, he's not asking us to trust him to save us from tragedy, from the pain of this world. He's asking us to trust him through it, trusting that he will give us the strength to endure painful reality of this broken world and also trusting as he says in Romans 8 that in any situation and perhaps especially in the darkest he can bring good out of it you know and will bring good out of it perhaps in this life definitely in eternity but anyway so that's the rule I think as a rule Every one of us begs like Martha, 
but mostly that's not the answer. But sometimes there's an exception to the rule, lucky Martha. Sometimes I think God has something bigger in mind and a bigger point that he's wanting to make. Uh, and so he will actually step in and change reality, change the natural course of things. And this is one of those times. Time for a miracle. So she says, whatever you do, whatever you ask, God will give you. And Jesus says, your brother will come back to life again. And Martha's like, yeah, yeah, sure. I know, I know. The resurrection in the last days, he'll come back to life. And Jesus says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And the one who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I love those words. I think it's so cool. But also, like, what the heck is he saying? <laughs> the one who believes in me will live, even if he dies. What does that mean? Live how, die how. The one who lives and believes in me will never die. Again, what live, what die? What's he talking about? Now, in this case, he's kind of playing with words. Because in this case, Lazarus, who is literally physically dead, is going to be made literally physically alive. But, spoiler, Lazarus did not never die. There is, Lazarus is not currently living in Bethany, never dying. Lazarus died, yeah? So that can't be the death that he's talking about and the life that Jesus is talking about. Clearly, what Jesus is doing with Lazarus is, is again, illustrating something with a physical example that actually is spiritual. Yeah? He's using the physical example of Lazarus to illustrate something bigger and deeper. What is that? What is Jesus saying? If you believe in me, what does it mean to believe in someone? Sure. So if you trust me, you will live even if you die. Live how? What type of life? Eternal, Eternal life, even if you die physically. And the one who lives Eternal. eternally and believes in me, trusts me, will never die <laughs> Correct. Not physically, right? Clearly not physically. We'll never die spiritually. Does it make sense? Yeah. Okay. Now there's another verse I want to look at, which I think illustrates this really nicely. But before we get there, I think it's worth checking out, uh, seeing what Martha's answer to Jesus' question is. Do you believe this? Because it's probably Martha's like most glorious moment of her life. As, at least as far as Jesus is concerned. She says, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God who comes into the world. And if you know the rest of the story, Lazarus is raised to life, comes out of the tomb, like literally like a mummy, wrapped in cloth. And Jesus has to say, Go, like, unwrap him, let him out. <laughs> News of this gets back to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And they're like, what are we doing? If we don't put a stop to this, everybody is going to believe that he is the Messiah. Bro, someone's back the <laughs> don't believe the Messiah. Right. And so that is the moment where they actually start plotting in earnest. Like, we have to find a way to get rid of him. And that's when they start plotting his death, which then happens, I don't know, days, weeks later. So it's quite a major moment, actually in the story of, well, in the gospel. But anyway, like I said, there's another verse that I wanted to look at here. It's probably the most famous verse in the New Testament. Any guesses? John 3.16, yeah. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So... For, so, for God so loved the world, it's like so as in this is how much, but also this is how. This is the manner in which he loved the world, right? 
So how did he love the world? How did he show his love to the world? Yeah, literally like sacrificed a part of himself, right? Part of God, Jesus, his son. Why? What for? So that everyone who believes in him will not perish, will not die. What kind of death? Yeah, absolutely not practical death. As I said, we all live with the practical consequences of sin in our lives and not just our sin, the, li- the sin and of those around us and the very like decay of the universe. Yeah, we live with the practical consequences of sin. We certainly all experience physical death. So again, this cannot be some- what Jesus is telling us. He must be talking about eternal death, that permanent loss of relationship. And so instead, if you believe in him, trust him, unlike Eve, you will have eternal life. And what is eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, who you sent. Do you see how everything has come full circle? Adam and Eve, man is created for? What are we created for? Relationship with God, which is? Eternal life. They're warned, if you go your own way, if you separate yourself from me, you're going to lose your relationship with me, which means you're going to lose your eternal life. That's exactly what happened. They died. Jesus came to? Restore what was lost, right? He's come to restore the relationship that was lost at the beginning, the purpose for our being. To make a way for us to have eternal life again. And that is why Jesus is such good news. That is the gospel. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what it's all about. Eternal life relationship with God. Okay, now, do you think that this whole plan with Jesus is something that God figured out along the way? They basically like, he tried some stuff before Noah, didn't work out, start again. Try some stuff with Israel, gives them his law, tells them exactly how to live, didn't work out. And so now like about 400 BC is like scratching its head, what do we do here? Maybe, maybe if I sacrifice myself, last try. Ah, oh, it worked. Everything planned when? <laughs> yeah, the answer is no. It's not something that he figured out along the way, that this was always the plan. What Adam and Eve chose to do in eating that fruit wasn't a surprise to God. And his solution, the good news, the gospel, Jesus, that wasn't something that he came up with along the way. That was always the plan. It was something that was planned from the beginning. In our second session in the book of Titus, well, in our second session, we looked at this passage from the book of Titus. And I said that we'd come back to it. It said, From Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's chosen ones and the knowledge of the truth that is in keeping with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised. When did he promise us eternal life? Before time began. But now in his own time, he has made his message evident through the preaching I was entrusted with according to the command of God our Savior. And so he made this promise of eternal life apparently before time began, but now he's like revealed it to us, made it known to us in his own time. That phrase before time began is quite interesting in the Greek. It's pro chronos aionios. Aeonios, aeonios. 
pro. I shouldn't have put that up there. What does pro mean before? Prologue, pro, I don't know. What are other things that start with pro that are like before? Pro means before. What do you reckon chronos might mean? Yeah, it's the word for time. In this case, it's plural. And then this ionios is a bit strange. It's almost everywhere that it's translated in the New Testament, it means eternal or everlasting. Couple places where it seems Paul seems to use it to talk about our present world, but mostly it's eternal, everlasting. It's it's ionios life, eternal life. So technically what it says there in the Greek is before times eternal. This is an adjective. So before eternal times, before eternal times. That's when eternal life was promised to us. Paul uses exactly the same phrase in his letter to Timothy. He says, he is the one who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not based on our own works, but on his own purpose and grace granted to us in Christ Jesus before eternal times. But now made visible through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, he has broken the power of death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So God saved us and called us in Christ Jesus when? Before eternal times. Now that's kind of, it's a strange phrase. It's almost, well, it is an oxymoron. What is an oxymoron? It's like saying something, but it's contradicting itself. Yeah. Time, eternal. Eternal is no time. That's what makes it eternal. There is no time. Eternal times. Like, what does that mean? It doesn't even make sense, literally. And so it seems to be an idiom that Paul is using for basically the, like, beginning of time. Time being a part of the universe that God created. And in fact, this, this word eon, eonios, is, comes from, as I said, it's an adjective. It comes from this word eon, which is literally an age, as in like an age of time. Yeah? Very long periods of time. So the kind of way that I read this is sort of like before the age of time. Which if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, that's kind of cool, I think. But apparently before time was, before the age of time, we were promised eternal life, saved and called. Yeah? Okay. Now in case that wording's a little bit ambiguous, it's a lot more explicit in other places. In uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says, Now we speak wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age who are perishing. Instead, we speak the wisdom of God, hidden in a mystery that God determined before the ages of our, for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so again, we have this mystery, the gospel, our salvation, that was ordained. It was, it was decided and established before the ages. And then I really love this, like, none of the rulers of this age understood it, otherwise they wouldn't have killed him. Who do you think the rulers of this age are? So the obvious answer is the Jewish leaders, and I think it kind of means that, and surely if they had known that he was the Lord of glory, you wouldn't have crucified him. But actually, often when this word rulers is used, it's actually talking in spiritual terms. Who's the ruler of this age? Satan. And I think if he'd known what he was doing, like I always love that, right? Like his moment of greatest victory, he's killed God. He's crucified the Messiah. Oh. <laughs> it was the ultimate moment of his defeat. So anyway, I like that. Now... In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, oh, again, that word age is eon again. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he says that God chose us, chose you, chose me, before, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be 
holy and blameless before him in love. And Peter uses the exact same phrase in his letter. He says, you know that you were ransomed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not by perishable things like silver or gold, but by the precious blood, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb, namely Christ, the Messiah. He was known before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for your sake. And here the wording is actually very clear in Greek. Pro, before, katabole is like, it's the founding or uh, conception of something. It's literally like laying it down and cosmos. The universe. So before the universe was laid down. Jesus was known. He was foreordained. He was set apart to be our savior. And we were chosen. He knew who would accept the salvation. Correct. But pre to what? Predestined to what? Before the foundation of the world. Before God created the world, Jesus was predestined to be our savior. It is. So it's very, very clear. This this salvation, the gospel, is not something that God came up with after the fall. This is something that God promised and gave to us before the world began, before he created it, which is pretty cool. Now, next question. Hopefully we'll get through this. I think so. That's okay. You can leave if you have to leave. Let's... Next question. So I've said, I've made the case that, well, not just me. These writers have all made the case that our salvation was, this plan was prepared before God created the world. The question is, how do we know that? Because all of these writers, these are all from the epistles. These are written after Jesus' death and resurrection. So is this salvation, the gospel, was it only revealed after Jesus died? After Jesus came? In which case, can we really know that this is something God had planned out from the beginning? How do we know it isn't something that he came up with along the way, right? And then told us after, oh, yeah, 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 I had this planned out from the beginning. Phew. Yeah? How do we know that Jesus was foreknown, set apart, that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world? And the short answer is, the gospel is not revealed only after Jesus. That God told us about it beforehand. In the book of Isaiah, God shares something that is unique to him, something that only he can do, and something that he uses to authenticate his word, to prove to us that the Bible is the word, is his word, the word of God. God says, Truly I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Who? Announces the end from the beginning, and reveals beforehand what has not yet happened. Who says, my plan will be realized, I will accomplish what I desire. So how can we know that God is God, and that his word is true? What does it say? What does God say? Announcing what happens before it happens. But how do we know that? Because he's the only one who can announce the end from the beginning and tell us beforehand about things that have not yet happened. What do we call that? Prophecy. And the Bible is full of prophecy. Full of it. Now, who do you suppose most of that prophecy is about? Jesus. And that's not me saying so. That's what Jesus said. So, back in the Gospel of John, really looking forward to getting there. John's got so many great stories. Jesus is in Jerusalem and he heals a cripple on the Sabbath. And so, of course, the Jewish leaders are angry. And Jesus says to them, basically, why are you upset? I'm just doing what my father is doing. <laughs> That makes them even angrier, right? Because apparently by saying that he is the son of God, 
He's saying that he is of the same essence as God. He is equal to God, that he is a God, right? Blasphemy. And so they get even angrier. To which, because, because Jesus is saying that he's God, and Jesus is like, well, but that's right. I am equal with God. But you don't have to take my word for it. He says, don't, don't take my word for it. My father is my witness. He testifies about me. Believe him. God, <laughs> God is my witness. Well, that's exactly what he says. He says, the father who sent me, he has testified himself about me. You people have never heard his voice, nor seen his form at any time, nor do you have his word living in you because you do not believe me, the one whom he sent. You study the scriptures thoroughly because you think in them you possess eternal life, but it is these same scriptures that testify about me. But you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. It's an incredible thing to say, right? He's saying, you guys are studying your, the scriptures, God's word, so carefully. You think if you figure out the right things, that's going to be life. That's going to give you eternal life. If you live just perfectly, you're going to have eternal life. But you're missing the point. That's not the point. It's all about me. <laughs> I am the life. Later... After Jesus has died and been resurrected, on that Sunday morning that Jesus is resurrected, two of his disciples are walking on the road out of Jerusalem. They're going to a place called Emmaus. They're going to Emmaus. And they're having this like really intense conversation with each other. Jesus, their Messiah, has just been killed. And they're trying to figure out what's, what's going on. What has just happened here? Anyway, so Jesus comes up. They don't recognize him, which is quite common after Jesus is resurrected. And Jesus comes up next to them, and he's like, what are you guys chatting about? <laughs> and they stop and look, says sad, and look at him and say, like, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's the things that have happened there this week? And Jesus is like, what things? <laughs> And so they then explained to him, whole story, you know, there's this guy from Nazareth. We were convinced he was the Messiah. He was doing amazing miracles. But the, the church leaders, the, well, the, the Jewish leaders crucified him. And even stranger, this morning, some of the women in our group went to the tomb. They found the tomb empty and met some angel there who said, Jesus is alive. And like, can you imagine? Like, they're saying this to Jesus. And he's like, hello. <laughs> It must have been quite hard to keep a straight face, but good question. Good question. There's some very strange passages. I don't know the answer to it, but people did not recognize it. They knew it was him, but they weren't sure, which is weird. Okay, but these guys didn't recognize him until, anyway, until later. Anyway, so... They've just explained to him what all's going on and that they don't understand what this means. And Jesus says to them, you foolish people, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. And so Jesus basically says to these two disciples, like, why are you surprised? This is exactly what God said would happen, yeah? And so then he, as they walked along the road, they had a Bible study, which is pretty cool, with Jesus. And he went through the scriptures, starting with Moses. What's Moses in the Bible? Well, that is who Moses is. But who's, what's he talking about when he says beginning with Moses? Do you guys know? It's basically the first five books are believed to have been written by Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so he starts there. Where did we start? Genesis. That's where Jesus started. Started with Genesis and all the prophets and showed these two disciples, Cleopas and his friend, all the things written in there about him. 
And so then back to the question that we started with, like, was the gospel only revealed after Jesus? What does Jesus say? I'm in, this, I'm in the Old Testament, right? Start with Moses and all the prophets. It's all about me. So no, the gospel wasn't revealed after Jesus. It was actually revealed hundreds, thousands of years before. Long before Jesus came and fulfilled it. And so that's where I want to start our study of the gospels. So we've just finished the introduction. What? Four weeks in. Beginning with Moses and some of the prophets, I want to look at some of the things that the Bible says about Jesus and some of the ways that the gospel is written in the Old Testament for us uh, along the way. All of what? Yeah. I, I don't know them all, right? That's why I wish I was with them when Jesus was going through the scriptures. I don't know them all. They're everywhere. But I'm going to share with you some of the cool ones that I know about. Why? Why do I want to start in the Old Testament? Because that's why I believe that the Bible is true. It's why I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. It's why I believe that the gospel is true and that Jesus is the only way for me to have eternal life. It's not because of it's not from the New Testament. Like, I love the New Testament. Like Peter, when Jesus said to the disciples, like, do you guys want to leave? Is this too hard? And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, like, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. I love the New Testament. The New Testament is the words of eternal life. But the reason that I believe them the reason that I know that they are true is because this gospel, this eternal life, is prophesied hundreds, thousands of years beforehand. Yeah? Long before Jesus was born. That, to me, is like the glory. That's, that's where you see the glory of God revealed in his word, from my, in my opinion, or at least for me is when I see the gospel revealed in the Old Testament in amazing, amazing ways. That's where it like comes to life. And so that's where I want to start. Now, last thing. Where do you get, where do you reckon the gospel is first hinted at, prophesied about in the Old, in, in the Old Testament? Any guesses? Where would we go first if we want to see the gospel Jesus hinted at in the Old Testament. Earlier. Definitely Genesis. Yes. Before Cain and Abel, chapter 4. Well, it's pretty early. I'm, I'm thinking it's before I think it is before as well. Where did we get up to when we were in Genesis 3? So this is where we got up to. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? And the man said, I heard you moving in the orchard, so I hid away because I was naked. And God said, who told you that? Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? And then Adam's like, it was, it was the woman who you gave me, it's kind of your fault. The woman says, as she says to, to Eve, like, what have you done? And the woman says, it was the serpent. He tricked me. That's what we got up to. Adam and Eve blaming other people for their decision. Next verse. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the cattle and all the living creatures of the field. On your belly you will crawl, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. That's the first prophecy of Jesus. Yeah. 
I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That's what we'll look at next week. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the privilege and joy it is to explore your word. Um, I thank you so much that our salvation, that was not something that you came up with along the way, but Lord, that you always knew what was happening. You always knew what your solution was and uh, that we were a part of that. Uh, I pray and ask that you would reveal more and more of your love to us, that you would give us a deeper and deeper love for your word and uh, that you would help show us ways, areas in our lives where we can do things that have eternal value and we can look forward to the day when we put on our new bodies, Lord, and uh, experience the life that you created us to have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Are you going to get your driving license? No, I'm not working. I'm being unemployed. That's what I'm going to be doing. Is this like live? Cleaning the city? No, he's just doing a recording. How's it going? Okay. Do you want me to press pause?